You know, there is great value in hard work. God has made us as working beings. We were designed to work from the very start. This is not part of the curse. The curse came in that working might be a little harder, but there is dignity and satisfaction in our work. That is, that is really the way that we were made. And you know that because when you finish a project, you're able to you know, have a certain amount of satisfaction when you're, when you're done. You look at it, you say, man, that, that came out pretty well. Last year during pandemic season, we had a number of those projects that we involved ourselves in. And in our backyard, we laid out a deck in our backyard. We built a platform to put a nice dual entry shed in it. And now this picture was, is provided and I did not get permission from my wife. So don't tell her that I just put her picture on here. And I also didn't ask my dog if I could put uh, her picture up, but there, there it is. We had this low-lying deck there. We worked hard on it. You know, most of it was the sweat of my son's brow as they dug trenches uh, and, and cut through roots and all kinds of things so that we could lay a foundation for that deck. Um, but we were able to, to, to get it done, sweat, uh, toil, but then we had the finished product. We were able to look at it and, and uh, enjoy it, sit out at the, the deck, having a fire, enjoying it together. So this is part of the the reward of hard work. We're kind of wired that way to enjoy the fruit of our labors. And while this is a a natural satisfaction that we get from a job well done, there is one major area in our lives, there's one major area in in our lives that working to earn this one item will actually hinder our ability to attain it. Let that sit for a moment. There's one item in our lives that if we labor to earn it, it will actually prevent us from earning it. If you think, or if I think, that I can gain righteousness before God, that's a right standing before God, because of my efforts, I will actually forfeit any hope of laying a hold of it. This is a scriptural principle that comes up from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. Genesis being the first book of the 66, Revelation being the 66th book. All the way through, God is teaching us one thing, one main thing about among many things, but one main thing, that I cannot gain a right position before him by my efforts. Instead, He wants to provide for me out of His mercy and His grace this glorious standing of being right with God. And this is the matter that Paul turns our attention to next. He asks, why are there so many Jewish people who are descendants of Abraham, recipients of the promises, why is it that they have failed to come to God for their salvation? And why are there so many Gentiles, people that aren't of Abraham, Why are there so many Gentiles and so few Jews who have responded to God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ? And the simple answer is this. They thought that they could gain a right standing before God through the good efforts that they brought forth in obeying God's commands. Now, from a human perspective, we'll be honest, from a human perspective, it certainly makes sense to us that those who would labor diligently to Uh, gain some right favor with God, it would make sense to us that God would then 
grant them favor, that we would secure his favor by those efforts. It makes sense to us from a human standpoint. The problem is our perspective is not the one that matters in this. Just because it makes sense to me that God would reward those that work hardest does not make it so. God has given us clear direction, and that's what we want to understand. And and think of it this way. If God explicitly tells me how to come before Him, and yet I choose an alternate pathway, do I really want to please Him? If He tells me, go here and do this, and I say, no, I have a better idea. I'll go here and do that. Do I really want to please him? And the answer is no. That's, it's, it's a false thing that I'm thinking I want to please God. With whom was God pleased? Abel, who brought the produce that God had created. Or Cain, who brought the produce that he sweat for. God was much pleased with Abel, and not with Cain. And the Bible tells us why. It doesn't leave it mysterious to us. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11, this will be on the screens to my left and right. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, He still speaks. In other words, there's still this testimony about Abel, not because Abel was the greatest person that ever lived and did all these wonderful things. No. What is the testimony? It's the first two words in the sentence. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. Why was it acceptable? Because it's the one that God told him to bring, and he did it by faith. And so uh, God has demonstrated again and again that it is his way that produces eternal blessing and salvation. Now we come to our passage this morning in Romans chapter 9. Take a look beginning in verse 30. Romans 9.30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Listen carefully. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This passage is not complex, is it? It is pretty straightforward. Just to run through it very quickly in summary fashion, the Gentiles have reached a right standing with God. How? In verse 30, through faith. 
In verse 31, the Jews have not reached that right standing. Why? He tells us in verse 32. Because instead of running the race according to the parameters that God set out, they sought a different way and tripped. They tripped over the rock of their salvation, and the rock of their salvation is Jesus Christ. In chapter 10 and verse 1, Paul wants them to be saved, and he prays for their salvation. And then he states some of their problems. Again, it's really in summary of what he just says at the end of chapter 9. He says in verse 2, their problems are zeal without proper knowledge. And in verse 3, seeking to establish their own righteousness rather than receiving God's righteousness. What's the solution? Christ is the end and the goal of righteousness for all who believe. That's pretty simple. I I think the flow is natural. The flow is easy to understand. And so our process this morning will be simply to follow that that flow, to understand what the text says very clearly. It's It's a simple project for us this morning. Why is it simple? Because all we're going to say, this is what our goal is, right? Is yes, Lord, what you say is true. This is not some man said this. This is not some system said this. This is not some church says this. And this is not because this guy says this. What does it say? It's nice and simple. We like this. We've come this morning to worship God. And to worship him well, we're going to do that by seeing what he says and saying, yes, yes, that's the truth. No matter what my mind says, that's the truth. Because it is objectively true. Objectively true. Me, my, my truth, your truth, their truth, that person's truth, that's called subjective truth. It's like you get to determine what's true and what's not. That's not, that's not that doesn't work. You know it doesn't work because you've, you've applied it in real life. When you have a product that you want to sell and you say, this is $752 worth of product, you don't say, well, here's two bucks and this, in my truth, this $2 equals the $752 that you want it to equal. Because the other person would say, no, that's not how that works. And the same thing would happen in the other, the other direction. They were, you're selling something, you're not selling your $752 worth of product for $2. It's objectively true. That's what we have in the scriptures. So first of all, the Gentiles have laid hold of righteousness by faith. Verse 30, here's what he says again. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. So Paul actually uses, I I feel this kindred spirit with Paul, he uses athletic terminology. You know how I like to use athletic illustrations and stuff. Well, Paul does that all the time. So like we're kind of buddies that way. Uh, He's using this athletic illustration. He first uses this concept of of pursuing, and the word is dioko in the Greek. It means to, to pursue or to run after. And then he uses another term. It says that they have attained it in the middle of the verse. That comes from the Greek term katalambano. It just means to lay hold of. And really, the reason why I talk about this being an athletic illustration is you're running, you're running, you're running to get to the, the finish line. And what are you going to get at the end of it? You get that, that wreath right in the head and back in those days or the gold medal or the silver medal or the bronze medal today. You're attaining something. That's the concept. It's like you're pursuing something and you get the prize. But what he says here is strange because he says they didn't run hard and yet they were awarded. And this is kind of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. He uses some of these same words. And I want, I want to draw your attention there. It will be on the screens to my left and right. 
He said this in Philippians chapter 3, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul is talking about in his own life, pursuing after Christ. God's already obtained him as his own possession. And he says, I'm going to run. And I haven't quite gotten to the place where I've attained what, I'm, what I've been attained for. But I'm going to run until the end. I want to attain the prize. That's Paul's illustration in Philippians 3. But here in Romans 9, he says, they didn't run. And they didn't pursue. And yet they received the prize. This is an upside down concept to us. Why is it and how? Why does this happen? Why does God do this? And how does he take a, pe a people who are not seeking and pressing and pursuing and, and really doggedly determined and yet granting them righteous, righteousness? He does it through the preaching of the gospel. It's, it's an amazing thing. And that's the context of this passage. Look at Romans chapter 10. You're already there. Look at verse uh, 17. He says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. He's now kind of bookending what he has started at the beginning of Romans. The, probably the theme of Romans can be characterized as Romans 1.16, where Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, to whom? Everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So how does it come about that a person not pursuing receives this prize? Well, they get the prize through faith, but how does faith engendered? It's through the preaching of the Word. The Gospel comes forth, people hear the Word of the Gospel, and God does this wonderful work of changing their attention, changing their mind. Instead of pursuing my own way, I'm going to build my own platform. I'm going, to, I'm going to attain the heights that God will be proud of me, like the people did back in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. Oh, we're going to reach up to heaven. That doesn't work. <laughs> that doesn't work. Instead, God says, I'm going to tell you what I've done. I've done something to obtain you. You simply need to look to me and believe. This is what he's telling us again and again. And somehow, the Jewish people, those descendants of Abraham that were promised so many blessings, so many of them denied Christ and his work, and so many Gentiles who weren't even trying, weren't even moving in that direction, God has brought forth faith. You know, the Bible lets us know that one man plants, another man waters, you know what the rest of that statement says in 1 Corinthians 3? But God gives the increase. God is doing something, and he is going to accomplish it. It's, it, it, it's a guarantee. God is saving people. But there are obstacles to our faith. You're aware of it, aren't you? Obstacles to our faith. You know, we characterize it by these three um, headings, right? The world, the flesh, 
and the devil, right? What, what does the world tell us about our Christian faith? Well, there's something wrong with it. It's, 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 it's ancient, it's archaic, it's barbaric, it's narrow, it's intolerant. That's, there's that pressure from the world that, that would be an obstacle to someone's faith, right? But it's not just out there that there's a, an obstacle. There's, there's an obstacle right here. Want to know why? Because it just makes sense that I do something to earn it. It just makes sense. It just, it's, it's the way we're, we're wired. If God is going to be pleased with me, it's going to be because I do something to make Him pleased with me. That's how we're wired. But it's not what the text of Scripture is calling for. Work comes out of our faith. Work doesn't produce our faith. Works flow from God's work in our lives through faith. That's how it works. And so we have this challenge. But God is able to overcome the world's influence. And God is able to overcome my fleshly influence. My, my, my own thinking. He's able to overcome that. And you know, Satan is trying to blind the minds of those that don't believe. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we're very well aware. We're very well aware of God's ability to, to set Satan's work aside and allow light to shine where there was darkness. God can overcome anything. The obstacles that come into people's lives are nothing in light of God's power. God is able to overcome any adversary. And so what do we take out of that? We must continue to tell people the truth about Jesus Christ. That he's merciful. That he's gracious. That he's willing to save. Even someone like me. Even someone like you. I'm no day at the beach. I know what I'm like. I live with me every day. I'm not going to pretend and uh, say to you, oh yes, every, every decision I make is always right and every word that comes out of my mouth is always right and every action I ever take is always right. And every attitude I have when you say something sideways to me is always just the right response every time. No, I am no day at the beach. I'm very well aware of that. I live with myself every day. And the more I know the Lord, the more I recognize my sinfulness to be exceedingly sinful. And God, even though I'm exceedingly sinful, God mercifully saved me. This is the wonder of the gospel. It's, it's, it's so opposite of our logic. And the Gentiles have come to understand this, but the Jews in this context, they have not. The Jews, they built obstacles to God's saving righteousness. Right in this text, um, the second point that we want to notice is this, as we move to verses 31 and 32, the Jews sought a law that could produce righteousness. The Jews sought a law that could produce righteousness. Look at verse 31 now. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. Well, they ran hard, but they were not successful. Why didn't they get a trophy? You know, friends, there's no participant reward in this one. You know, everyone gets a trophy in this day and age. This, this, that's not how it works with this. It's not a participation award. They, they ran hard, but they didn't run in accordance with what God has told them to do. 
And because of that, there was no trophy for them. They did not succeed. Why didn't they succeed? Rather than run after the prize as if uh, they could attain it by the way God says, they ran after as if they could attain it by doing it their way, working for it, attaining it their, their own way. Now listen to this statement from Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. It'll, it'll ring familiar to you. In Hebrews 11:6, the Bible says this, And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists. Ready? And that He rewards those who seek Him. What is He looking for in this passage? Will you trust Me? Will you believe Me? I created the world out of nothing. The Bible tells us that he spoke the world into existence. Do you believe him? A lot of people in this day and age do not believe him about that. It was a, it was a big bang or some other thing that took place. And the, the universe created itself. Therefore, the universe is God. God has told us what he did can either say, yes, I believe that, or no, I don't believe that. Were you there? I, I, can't, I can't attest to it by my sight. I can't attest to it by you know, testing. <laughs> it requires faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Well, the creation, the sustaining of the universe, and God's work of salvation are equal in this regard. We have to know it by what God has revealed to us. We have to believe what God has done. And the Jewish people and many others along with them have thought that the law or some other way was a means of gaining a right standing toward God. Now, we understand this, that, that the law that they're talking about here is not a bad thing. Sometimes we talk about law and works as if law and works are bad. Law and works aren't bad. In fact, the Bible tells us that the law is good. Uh, Paul told Timothy that. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, properly. Well, what, what is, what's a good use of the law? Well, the law reveals our sin in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. That's a good use of the law. You see, okay, this is what God says, and I have violated that. I'm a sinner. That, that's, that's a good use of the law. It also teaches us what's right. In Galatians 3, it tells us that the law was our guardian or our tutor to bring us to God. So it gives us some instruction on, on what's right and wrong. And the law also distinguishes between God's people and unbelieving nations. So in other words, there's this, this uh, after, after excuse me, Moses brought the law to the people of Israel, he made this statement. Just I'm going to read it. It'll be on the screens. I want you to think about what Moses is saying to the people about God's law in this reading. He says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near as, it, as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Like, that's, that's a good thing, right? You see, this is an amazing thing that... God has placed a law in, in and among this people so that we live in a way that's right. You know, one of the great things is very interesting. Uh, in the Mosaic Law, God told the people, when you're plowing your fields, leave the edges unharvested. Why is that? Because someone passing by 
might need it. Now, I find it interesting. He didn't say harvest it all and then bring it to their door, you know, meals on wheels it. He says, leave the edges undone so if someone needs it, they get up out of bed, they move toward it, and they do the work of harvesting it and then preparing it, and then they have something to eat. And if they aren't able to, right, then there's someone else that they know that can go and harvest it and, and help them with the process. It's very interesting. This is just one of those good things that God has done for his nation to tell them, listen, we don't, we're not uncaring and unkind. There, there are things that we have to remember. There are people that are going to be poor and needy, and we have to consider them and help them. It's just a unique and a wonderful thing about God's law. There are many other interesting concepts. The, the law was designed not to produce a right standing before God, but it was designed to demonstrate a distinction between God's people and those that didn't know him. Really, so that, that God's people would be a shining light to those around them. To live an exemplary manner of life. And that's really what we want to do today, isn't it? Live in a way that the world notices that we're honest, honorable, kind, generous, thoughtful. That, that we're not like bad-mouthing everything that moves that we're not telling everyone how, you know, how everyone, you know, pointing our fingers at all the bad things and, and, and every single issue that we could possibly say something negative about, that's, that's all they hear from us. That, that's not, I don't think that's, that's not the way that God intended for us to impact those around us. Rather than that, we're to be demonstrating that God's work in salvation impacts how we do our job how we live at the grocery store, how we drive on the roads, how we deal with our husband, how we deal with our, our wife, how we deal with our children in a way that demonstrates there's, there's fruitfulness here. That's what it's like to be a light to those that dwell without that light. Well, the law was never designed to produce righteousness. In fact, it can't do that. So the, the phrase that we're we're looking at here, we're in verse 31. It says, they didn't succeed in reaching that law. What was that law? A law that would lead to righteousness. And why is it that they didn't attain to a law that produced righteousness? Let's pause and ponder. Why did they not attain, get the prize, for a law to the law that produces righteousness? Ready, class? Because the law doesn't do that. They were trying to attain to a, to a, a, a goal that the law was never able to provide. Now, if I just say that to you and you say, all right, yeah, I agree with that, or I disagree with that because you just made some statement, I just made some statement, well, you would have a right to say, well, I don't, I'm not sure that I agree with you, but I'm not going to let you off so easily. I want to actually look at God's word because God's word tells us this clearly. Take a look at Galatians. Now you're in Romans. First and second Corinthians come next, and then Galatians. I want to take a look at Galatians chapter 2 for just a moment. Galatians chapter 2. Now I'm going to read verse 16. And God won't let us wiggle away from this one because he layers his statement. It says it three times. In one verse. So we can't wriggle away from it. 
Look at what it says, Galatians 2 and verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Did you see it? Three times. If the first time wasn't good enough, (laughs) and the second time wasn't good enough, I guess three times is the charm. He got it. Now at the end of the chapter, look at verse 21. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law... Oh, wow. Then Christ died for no purpose. Can you say it any more clearly than this? If righteousness were through the law, then Christ should not have died. That's what he just said. And if that's not enough, one more. Chapter 3, same same book. Chapter 3 and verse 21. He says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But there wasn't a law that could produce life, and therefore righteousness is not by the law. Is that clear? Romans is clear on it. Galatians is clear on it. Let's head back, please, to to Romans. So, so far in our discussion, we've recognized that the Gentiles have laid hold of righteousness by faith, which is God's pathway. The Jews sought a law that could produce righteousness, and thus they have not attained it. What was the biggest problem? What was the biggest problem? And here's it. It, it, Here it is. The Jews rejected their Messiah. The Jews rejected their Messiah. Look at verses 32 and 33. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. They, they rejected the Messiah. They, they tripped. They stumbled. They were running hard, but they tripped on something. And you know if you're running and you trip, it spells utter disaster. Similar to if you're on your multi-thousand dollar bike in the Tour de France and an overzealous fan with their sign bumps into you and mass wreckage ensues, that is not an excellent recipe for attaining to any goal. You're not going to make a lot of progress when you stumble. Well, that's the concept. If you have this multi-bike pile up or if you're running as a a person trying to gain something but stumble over Christ you fall and you make no progress and Paul defines the stumbling stone um, by combining two passages from the book of Isaiah he uses Isaiah 8 14 and Isaiah 28 16 we're not going to turn there because it says it right here you can look at them later if you'd like Isaiah 8.14 and Isaiah 28.16 but it says it right here as it is written behold I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame who is the stumbling stone he's the one that God has made the chief cornerstone he is the Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ he came unto his own remember and his own did not receive him They stumbled. 
They were looking for a different kind of salvation. Let me just pause you just for a moment. There is no better salvation than the one that God offers. You know, we live in this life, you know, you're old enough right now, most of you, to have seen people come in, into this life and go from this life. It's a hard process. None of us like the departure of our friends and our loved ones. But you know it happens. You've seen it. You're getting closer. We're all getting closer. We know the process. So if, if, if God wants to provide us with temporary little salvations throughout this life, that's great. I'll take them. They're all bonuses. But that's not the one I'm searching for. There's one about eternal righteousness. There's one about eternal salvation. There's one about eternal life. That's the one that really matters. Because our, our life will come to an end. And, and the question is, then what? And what God is telling us here is the one that puts their faith in Christ will never be put to shame. In other words, you're going to come to that day of judgment having trusted Christ and you will live and experience the glory of what God has provided rather than being ashamed about having chosen a different pathway. Listen to the words of Thomas Schreiner. He made it, makes a good point with this. I think it's helpful for us. Paul's youth of, use of both Isaiah citations is in line with the general meaning of the Old Testament text. Ready? Here it is. Those who trust in Yahweh will find Him to be a shelter and security in the midst of judgment. But those who place their trust elsewhere will face judgment. God is a shelter. He's a rescue. and He's ready to do that. He's offered Himself to you. He offered Himself to these Jewish people that, that Paul is talking about. And yet they, they chose a different way. So as we move into chapter 10, only a few more minutes. It's warm in here. I feel it. As we move into chapter 10, listen to what he says about his desire for these people. Chapter 10 and verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So I'd say I can characterize this this way. The Jews, just as the Gentiles, need salvation. And there is a sincere desire and an effort on Paul's part to see Israel saved. This reminds us of what he said at the beginning of chapter 9. He was talking about how he would even be willing, if it could even be possible, that he would be cursed for, for their sake, that they would be gained salvation. What a... What a mind-blowing statement for Paul to have made at the beginning of chapter 9. But here in chapter 10, he says, I have a passion about this, I have a desire for it, and I am involved in the process. What is the, the participation that he involves himself in? Well, he prays for them. But we also know he doesn't just pray, he was also a preacher. He preached the gospel to them. And you'll remember his practice. He went into every new city as a missionary. He would go to the synagogue first. He would go and he would preach the gospel to the synagogue first. And then he would go to the Gentiles that were not uh, those that were born of Abraham. And so uh, he, he demonstrated this passion in not just a word speaking of desire, but also in his actions of prayer and preaching. So that moves us to verse 2. The Jews were zealous without knowledge. The Jews were zealous without knowledge. Verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. 
you know, they had plenty of knowledge, right? They, they knew the Old Testament law. They knew the writings. They knew the prophets. But there's a difference between information and understanding. You know, there's this phrase in the Old Testament, and I think it can be easily misunderstood because of people's misunderstanding of God. The expression is the fear of the Lord. For some people, when they think of the fear of the Lord, they're actually quaking and, and, and like trying to run and hide, and they're talking about God sending lightning bolts from, from heaven. I'd never step foot in that church because I'm so bad that if, if I stepped in there, lightning bolts would come down. That, that's, that's not how that works. <laughs> that's not how any of that works. I've seen that commercial. At any rate, um, the, the fear of the Lord isn't about this, uh, uh, when is he going to strike? The fear of the Lord is about coming underneath God's sovereign care, coming underneath God's sovereign rulership. And so we have this expression, and I think it's very important to what we're talking about in Romans 10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is, is related to coming under God's sovereign rule. And the people of Israel, they needed to understand God and his plan. Ready? In light of what God told them, rather than based upon their own fascination. We have to come to know God based upon how he actually reveals himself in the word of God, rather than my hunches and my feelings and my thoughts about who he is. You know, for further thinking on this, if you read through the Gospels, you'll see how Jesus talked to the, to the religious leaders. You thought, you know, you were all sorts of holy because you washed your hands with the amount of like a quarter of an egg's volume. You washed your hands from, from tip of your fingers to your elbow. That was the actual practice in the, the, the first century. To have their hand washing. They would use the amount of water that was equal to a quarter of an egg. And you really think your hands are clean when you're done with that? It was a ritual. And Jesus deals strictly with all these things. He's, you have all these laws, all these thoughts about me, and you're, you're, you're neglecting the weightier matters. Because they didn't understand who God was. They didn't understand what God was providing. They weren't picking up on the clues that God was leaving. See, all through Scripture, from Genesis all the way through, God was leaving little clues of his redemption. His plan to redeem fallen man. Right from Adam and Eve's sin. Right while God was, was pronouncing judgment on Adam for his sin and Eve for her sin and the serpent for, for its, his sin, right? God made a promise that the seed of the woman would come and would crush the head of the serpent. That was just a little seed that God was foreshadowing. And then a little later in Genesis, you see Noah finding grace in the eyes of the Lord. And a little further in Genesis, you see Abraham as a source of how God was going to bless the whole world. Seeds all throughout. These clues that God was giving, foreshadowing Jesus Christ. We learn again and again, 
that God does things in ways that mystify our human expectation. Therefore, we need to submit our thinking to what God reveals. So we're, we're in Romans. We're still moving our way through this. We're talking about the Jews rejecting. They've, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. Paul wants them to be saved. He's praying for their salvation. He's actively involved in preaching so that they would be saved. But they have a zeal for God, but it's a zeal that's not, not in accordance with knowledge, not in accordance with what God has revealed. As you move to verse 3, we notice this concept. The Jews sought to establish their own righteousness. Look at verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So at the beginning and the end of the verse, you have whose righteousness in view? God's righteousness. In the middle of the verse, whose righteousness is in view? Their own. Paul has already revealed to us very clearly where the righteousness of God comes from. Just for a way of reminder, if you're in the book of Romans, take a look at chapter 1. This is vitally important. Romans chapter 1, we already mentioned verse 16, we'll read it again, but verse 17 is where our main interest is. We're talking right now about the Jews seeking to establish their own righteousness, and we would need to figure out what is God's righteousness. What is God's righteousness? Well, it's revealed in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So what is the righteousness of God? It's something that comes from Him, it's His, and it's given by faith. And yet, the people of Israel sought to establish. Now there's an interesting word he uses. Isteni in the Greek. It means to set up. To set it up. They tried to set up their own righteousness rather than receive righteousness. Why? Well, I, I can't answer all the, all the whys, right? But by implication, why? Because it feels better to earn something than to receive something. And God has simplified this in a way that mystifies our understanding. What, what has he done? Instead of me earning forgiveness and earning grace, God grants mercy and grants grace if I will just turn away from myself and turn to him. It is glorious to receive from the Lord Forgiveness that lasts forever and righteousness that lasts forever. A guarantee of eternal salvation. It's a gift from him. Paul's already taught them that none is righteous, no, not one. Paul had come to this place himself. He had already arrived. He, he, he was one of these Jews that was lost in darkness. Did you know that? He was one of these that was, that was enshrouded in, in trying to, to please God. In fact, he did it better than anyone at the same time that he was living. He was above all of his equals in his religious fervor and accomplishment. And yet he says this in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things 
and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You know what he said? All my efforts accumulated to a dung heap. It's kind of disgusting, but that's what he said. I worked really, really hard, and I have a mound of... Well, let's, how, how can I clean this up? Manure. The next verse gives the solution for his problem of having accumulated a pile of manure for the Lord. Listen to what he says. Verse 9 of Philippians 3. And I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. What are the last three words? That depends on faith. What is, the, what is the basis of Paul's righteousness? Trusting God. Through whom? Christ, his son, that gave his life on a cross. This is where Paul turns to next in Romans 10. Last verse, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Oh, you're seeking to establish your own righteousness. That's not going to help. You need God's righteousness. And Christ is that righteousness. He is the accomplishment of that righteousness. He's the way you attain that righteousness. It is granted to you. The, the, the Gentiles who didn't even seek and run and pursue and work hard for it, God has granted them. They've attained this righteousness. How? Because they looked not away from the stumbling stone, but they looked toward Him. And instead of Him being foolishness or a stumbling stone, they recognized Him to be justification and life and sanctification and wisdom and honor and blessing. That's what they recognized Jesus to be. And because they turned to Christ in faith, there was no more need for a law of righteousness because the law had come to an end in Christ. So we see in verse 4, true eternal righteousness comes only through Christ. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The word end is the word telos. It can mean the end of something, the accomplishment of something, the goal of something, or the finish of something. So it kind of has multiple purposes. But ultimately, it leads us to understand that we have everything that we need with regard to righteousness through whom? Christ. Christ is the end, the fulfillment, the goal of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. Thomas Schreiner said it this way, just a restatement, the result of Christ being the goal and end of the law is not now right standing with God is available for all who put their faith and trust in him. So the question is, are you one of those? Are you one of those that have come to the place in your life that you recognize all your efforts don't, don't gain you a right standing with God? Instead, God has provided a right standing for you through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Have you come to the place in your life that you've turned from your sin and all that you have to offer and turned to Christ and all that He has to offer? That's the question that, that we really come to at the end of this. 
as we try to make some applications briefly in our concluding moments, do you have your own, excuse me, do not have, do not have your own personalized conception of God? You and I don't get a chance to make up what God is like. We don't want to be those like the Israelites of, uh, that are in this text that he's being, speaking of, that have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. When God reveals something about himself through Scripture, it is our job to ask him to help us to understand what he's revealing about himself. Some things are hard. Many things are not. Secondly, do not try to gain a right standing before God through your own works. This is a sure way to not be awarded the prize of righteousness. So we ask, how is righteousness rewarded when we place our faith in Christ alone as the solution for our sin and for the prize of God's righteousness? That righteousness that God gives is what's necessary for eternal life. So very simply stated, trust in Jesus Christ. I'm going to leave a verse of Scripture on the board uh, while I close in prayer in just a moment. We mentioned it already from Philippians 3. I'm not going to read it again. It's going to be on the, on the screens for you. As I pray, maybe if you don't understand what it means to trust Christ, read through that and simply say something like this to God. God, what does it mean to trust in Jesus Christ? And what does this verse of Scripture from your word, what does it mean? When we're finished praying, we're going to sing a song together. And then I'll come and pray one last time for our morning service. And then we'll dismiss. We're going to have a barbecue. It'll be wonderful. Um, but if you don't understand yourself how to come into this right standing with God, and you'd like to know, you'd like to know, you'd like someone to help you, come, come up when everyone's walking out. Come up to the front. We'd be glad to help you to understand from the Scriptures how you can know that you have eternal life, how you can know you've trusted Christ and have this gift of eternal righteousness that God offers to us. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you recognizing so many wonderful truths, but, but mostly we want to recognize that you have provided for us the opportunity for forgiveness of our sin and you have provided for us the opportunity to have righteousness that we didn't earn, but you did through Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, for each believer here that we would rejoice in what you've done for us. And I also pray for anyone here that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, that has not come to this point of knowing that they have eternal life. Help them, Father, to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and to receive from you righteousness and life and eternal life. Do this work. We know you're able. We trust you. And we're thankful that you offer yourself and your salvation every day. Help us to be vehicles of that. In Jesus' name, amen.